Welcome to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jockeys through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Welcome to The Reference Desk. I'm Katie. And I'm Haley. Thank you for joining us today, this evening, all the time. All the time. Anytime. Whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah. We have a a new patron on our Patreon. So thank you, Luvia. I hope that we're saying your name right. Yes. Thank you. Welcome. Um, And for those of you who have filled out, uh, those of the patrons who have filled out the reading recommendation forms, those are slowly being sent out to you now with the list of nifty books for you to check out. That's one of the perks uh, for being a one of our patrons, so thank you. <laughs> Hooray! Yay! Uh, How are you doing? I'm okay. Alright. Yeah. Um, yeah, I finally, I painted my office. <gasps> I have, well, I redid, like, my whole office. Um, awesome. I have a new a new chair to sit in when we record. Lovely. Uh-huh. I finally replaced my tiny Victorian one that my butt did not fit in into <laughs> place. That's exciting. Hooray. <gasps> yeah. And I did like my entire office, like painted, hung uh new curtain rods, curtains, like everything. Mm-hmm. I did it in like a day and a half. Oh my gosh. Um, and then I don't know what's wrong with me as a human, but like Wednesday before Dave got home, I was like, "Man, I really didn't get anything done this week. I wasn't productive <laughs> enough." <laughs> like, what are you talking? Like, stop! You made a whole room. Why do I do this to myself? Oh goodness! I know, ridiculous. Yes. Well, I love the color. Thank you. So nice. It's like almost the exact same color that Rory's room was in our last house. Oh, yeah. And I loved it so much that yeah. I wanted it for my office. Hooray! Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. What's going on with you and your trampoline? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to move it off of camera. Yeah, <laughs> normally it's hidden. Um, I have not been jumping on it. Uh, Finn has been jumping on it. Um, uh, we had to bring Rory's up from the basement today because she like suddenly remembered it existed and demanded <laughs> that she have it. <sighs> I mean, it is a lot of fun, and I need to start doing it again. Um, yeah, but Finn, we were definitely trying to expel some energy <laughs> from this child. Who, <laughs> I don't know if he's going through a growth spurt or something, but he is wild. Aww. Wild, wild, wild. Um, he got his hair cut yesterday, and he keeps saying, I'm a handsome boy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. Yes. Uh, yeah, <sighs> so... That's fun. Um, I'm like wrapping up Cardinal Cup books, which is interesting. Ooh. We've had such good ones this year. It's been, it's actually been a really good time on the committee this year. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I've gotten at least four topics for the podcast <laughs> out of it. So, you know. That's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Wheel. Wheel. You have any staff picks for us? I do. Okay, so I have two. Okay. Um, my first one is kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Different. I don't know. It's not. It's not a book. It's not a movie. Um, okay. This 
past week, I took um, a workshop hosted by Skylar Baylar. I'm hoping that I'm saying um, his last name correctly. Um, But it was called Trans Action, a step-by-step workshop for allyship in action. Ooh. Um, And I I had signed up for this like three months ago when I saw it on my Instagram and then forgot and then saw the email that it was like starting when it was like 10 minutes in so i like quickly jumped on um but it was so so good oh good uh so skylar was the first transgender athlete to compete in any sport on an ncaa division one men's team wow yeah he swam for harvard for all four years of his undergrad. Okay. Um, and now he's a DEI speaker and advisor for uh, businesses, organizations, at schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hosts these workshops, and then he has um, like a whole learning program that you can purchase if you're like if you have an organization or a school that like it's like 25 modules that walks you through like everything about how to create an inclusive. Um, you know, environment for trans people. So super cool. Oh, and he also wrote a book, Uh. uh, a middle grade novel called Obi is Man Enough. Oh my goodness. Which I haven't read yet, but it sounds super cute. Uh, But anyways, the workshop was so great. Uh, Skylar is just, uh, he's, he's such a great like speaker and teacher. And you could tell that he was like, like, I get on camera to do even this, and I'm like, what are words? Yep. And he was just like, he's just so good. He's so good. Awesome. Um, there was a, I think he was seven, 76 or 78-year-old grandpa oh in the workshop. Oh, my God. And he, um, like, talked about how hard it was to unlearn these decades of things um but that he had you know a trans person in his life and he wanted to learn and be an ally for them (laughs) and it was just so beautiful and so that was wonderful uh if you're interested in taking a workshop i highly recommend it um i don't know when this episode will go up but he has workshops like all the time, like a few a month. So the next one is May 11th. And that one is um, specifically about like, the anti trans bills and anti trans rhetoric that are happening right now. Yeah. Um, and then the same one that I took was is being offered again on May 24th. And then there's one called trans athletes belong in sport on May 29th. Um, yeah, and you can find all of them at Skylar's website. It's pinkmantaray.com. Oh my goodness. Um, yes, adorable. And, uh, he's also on Instagram at pinkmantaray. But yeah, highly recommend. It was, it was awesome. I loved that he provided, like, specific examples of uncomfortable, um, like, situations that you might find yourself in. Yeah. And, like, how to be an ally in those situations. Awesome. Which was so helpful because, you know, you think that, like, you know all the stuff, but then something happens and you feel like you just, like, freeze. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he has, like, he has, like, a really good system for, like, quick questions to ask yourself about, like, am I in a good space to 
to stand up to this right now? And like, is it safe? And, you know, like just like a little like mini checklist to run through that was super helpful to me because, yeah, you feel like you just just don't know. I know. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So that was great. Um, And then I read the book Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. Okay. And it was lovely. Uh, I know that this has been kind of like making the rounds on book clubs and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's about an elderly woman named, I think her name's Tova. Uh, but it's about an elderly woman who works as a night cleaner at an aquarium. Mm-hmm. And she befriends an octopus. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And um, the woman had a terrible tragedy that happened in her past. And she still has kind of like a lot of questions attached to it. There's like an, um, an element of mystery. Um, and the octopus knows information that can help her but he has to figure out like how to communicate it to her this is amazing it was so good it was so good you i just i fell in love with this sweet mischievous octopus (laughs) and now i want a pet octopus but not really because they're too smart to be pets they're so smart they're so smart but yeah, yeah, it was really good. Oh, there's a children's book that I came out recently and I read it to Finn about um, an octopus. I think it's a true story. Uh, uh, he was uh, in one of the aquariums somewhere, one of the really big ones, um, and he kept escaping his, t- his tank. He would find all kinds of ways to escape uh, and try to get back to the ocean. And so I think they finally ended up letting him go. Oh, yeah. But they're yeah. super smart. Yeah, in the book, that's what this this octopus does too. Is he because um, he he gets bored with his food, so yeah. every night he'll like let himself out of his tank and go find <laughs> something better to eat, which usually involves like you know eating other exhibits. <laughs> I think they had this one trained. Like they put like an underwater camera, and he could like take pictures of the oh guests that came to look at him. Like they're so freaking smart. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. It really was. What about you? Well, my staff pick is kind of where I got my topic for this week. I actually kind of it is my topic for <laughs> this week. Like I I am summarizing a book for this week. Um so I'm I'm I'll be a little cryptic for a little bit while we <laughs> Okay. On this journey. Uh, the book is called uh, Peace is a Chain Reaction by Tanya Lee Stone. Um, it's a juvenile nonfiction and it's a narrative nonfiction. So it reads just really beautifully. Um, it tells the true story of the strangest military weapons I have ever heard of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um the tragic outcome of those strange weapons during World War II and how one man 40 years after the war was able to bring together people from both sides of this conflict in peace. Um, it's oh, it's beautifully hmm. written. Um, it weaves all of these storylines together like flawlessly um, in a way that I know I am not going to do justice, but I'm going to try. Um, so this is a great episode to listen to after Katie's episode about Americans in the Holocaust (laughs) or during the Holocaust. Um, and it allows me to kind of touch on an aspect of history that you also touched on. Um, and I don't want to say I'm 
I have been fascinated with it because that just seems like the wrong word mm-hmm. um, because it was absolutely horrendous. Um, but it's another one of those things that has really purposefully been swept under the rug. Uh, and it's something, again, you touched on in your episode, and that's the forced removal and incarceration of Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II. Oh, wow. Um, which, of course, is absolutely important, um, especially now with the increase in AAPI discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to definitely be on the rise. So, um, But because it is such an important topic um, – there's no way that I feel felt comfortable doing an entire episode on it because it feels like it should be like an eight-parter, right? Like there's yeah. just too mm-hmm. much that you want to get through. Um, so this story allows me to also touch on that. Um, so that is part of this story. It's going to, you know, talk about the treatment of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. Again, it will be about those real weird weapons that I talked about. I'm so um, intrigued. <laughs> So um, before I get into this actual topic, (laughs) um, I have a question for you. So if I asked you how many civilian casualties you thought that there were on United States mainland during World War II, what would be your guess? So this is not Pearl Harbor. This is continental U.S., you know, civilian casualty as a direct result of enemy action during World War II. Uh, what? Um, right. I <laughs> didn't know right. that was even a thing. So right. I guess zero. Because, yeah. So they didn't fight here, right? It, there was no, mm-hmm. you know, battles on American soil. Um, there were six civilian casualties from enemy attack what? on U.S. mainland. Were they um, spy balloons? Mm, no, not spy balloons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes, so there's <laughs> – you got one word, right? <laughs> oh. Uh, weather yeah, balloons. So weather balloons, that's it. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, their story has bewitched me this week. Uh, and that is the story of the Bly balloon bomb tragedy of 1945. Oh, my gosh. Literal balloon what? bombs. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I never would have guessed that the word that I got right was balloon. Balloon. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I had never heard of this either. Balloons. Okay. Balloons. Okay. I mean, Balloons. not a big fan of them in general. You won't you won't be after this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> You'll never go on a hot air balloon again. No. Um again, I don't know if you've been on a hot air balloon. I have not. I do kind of want to, but this might ruin it for me, huh? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to start our story uh, on May 5th, 1945. It was a beautiful Saturday morning. And uh, Archie Mitchell, who was the new pastor in the town of Bly, Oregon, decided to take a group of his Sunday school students fishing. Uh, His wife, Elsie Mitchell, um, here's a picture of both of them. There's Archie and Elsie Mitchell. Um, They were newlyweds, and Elsie was pregnant with their first child. 
Uh, she had baked a cake for the group to take with them along with some packed lunches, but she wasn't feeling well because of the pregnancy, so she decided to stay home for the outing. Um, but at the very last minute, she changed her mind and decided to go with them. Oh, no, just stay on your couch. <laughs> The entire time you're pregnant, if you have the ability to, just don't do anything ever. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. But no, she's going to You'll have to pee 10 times. Yes. (laughs) And this is not, this is the 40s. Like, there's not convenient places (laughs) to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Seriously, how did pregnant women get anything done? Oh, my God. I don't even know. That sounds horrible. (laughs) Yeah, so here she is. She's baked a cake and packed all these lunches, and she's decided to go fishing with this group of children and her husband. Um, So the group, uh, including Elsie Archie and the children, um, here they are, Sherman Shoemaker, Edward Egan, Jay Gifford, and then siblings Dick and Joan Patsky. Uh, They headed towards Gearheart Mountain, which is a little over 10 miles from Bly, Oregon. Uh, The road was not in the best condition because of runoff from melting mountain snow, and the Mitchells were stopped by a park ranger who was repairing the road. He told them that it would be extremely difficult to continue any further with the car, and so they drove just a little bit ahead to Salt Spring, parked their car, and began unloading their gear uh, to just fish there instead. Mm, Um, Yeah. The group of children- I would not continue down- a road no (laughs) no it's so scary and they're not you know it's not like a road it's just dirt you know like (laughs) it's just dirt um i mean i i I grew up on a dirt road so talking like some bygone era thing but um not with melting mountain snow no no you were in florida yes it was dry (laughs) sandy dirt right (laughs) Sandy dirt? Is that a thing? Or is that I mean, just sand? <laughs> no. I mean, like, doesn't some soil have more, like, sand right. in it? Then I don't know. Probably. I don't know. I don't know. We're Florida. not gardeners. We're annexing them anyway. So, no. <laughs> oh. Uh, we need to do uh, another yes. Florida update episode. Oh, gosh, it's scary. Scary times. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is the Florida update. Just pretend that this is happening in Florida because basically, yes. No. Um. Balloons. <laughs> yes. Balloons. Or fishing. Or dirt roads. <laughs> All of that All sounds of like okay. a Florida man story, right? It does. It uh. really does. 100%. <laughs> you just need like a gator or a python or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was talking more along the lines of like um, illegally detaining their own American citizens, you know that ah, sort of thing. Okay. But okay. Uh, yeah, that gotcha. thing, that that small thing. Um, <laughs> wow, we went on the off the rails real quick. Uh, yep, <laughs> yep. Okay, so they have listen. The last their- time yes. you gave me this much like forewarning about an episode, it was when you did the Hicks Clinic. <laughs> Which destroyed me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I mean, balloon bombs just sound fun, but... um... But it's not. It's a real bait and switch. It has a happy-ish ending. (laughs) 
Okay. All right. All right. I'm which sorry. Won't I'll come st- until, which won't come until later because, sorry, this is going to be a two-parter. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. They have parked their car. Uh, they are unloading their gear to go fishing. Uh, and the group of children uh, does what kids do and runs off. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So Elsie follows after them. They're only about 300 feet from the car when they stumble upon something weird. Um, Elsie yells out to Archie to come see, and he replies with the typical, in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) God, while she is chasing after five children. Right. While pregnant. (sighs) While pregnant. But in order to talk about what they found, we have to go back a few years. I'm going to try not to repeat too much of what you discussed in your episode, Katie, but just to set the scene, we know that World War II was one of the deadliest conflicts in human history, uh, and its origins can be traced back to the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed on June 28, 1919, ending World War I. The treaty imposed harsh reparations on Germany, including a loss of territory, financial reparations, and strict limitations on Germany's military capabilities. And these terms left Germany in a state of economic and political instability, which was exploited by Hitler and the Nazi party. Um, Sparks were also ignited in the Pacific region when Japan invaded China in 1931 and began setting up a Japanese state nation. And then on September 1st of 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland, that's when, of course, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany, officially beginning World War II. Um, and as you also mentioned in your episode, um, the majority of Americans wanted to stay out of this conflict. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they you know, still remembered the devastation from the First World War, and they had just suffered the Great Depression, um, among other more xenophobic reasons uh Mm -hmm. and please listen to katie's episode if you want to learn more about that um but on december 7th 1941 famously the day that will live in infamy uh staying out of the war was no longer an option for the united states 7 55 a.m the japanese launched a surprise attack on the united states naval base at pearl harbor in hawaii More than 350 Japanese aircraft, including fighters, bombers, and torpedo planes, attacked the base. Um, The attack lasted for two hours, and by the time it was over, more than 2,400 Americans were dead, and the Japanese had sunk or damaged 19 Navy ships, including eight battleships. Um, They also destroyed or damaged 188 U.S. aircraft. Wow, two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. guess, like, in my mind, I always pictured just, like, like a meow. Mm-hmm. Two hours. Oh, two my hours of bombing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which... It's horrific. I feel like that's how long, like, the Pearl Harbor movie is, right? Or maybe it's, like, four hours. I don't know. That's a long movie. <laughs> I never watched it. <gasps> With Josh Hartnett in it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I cannot believe that I, like, made it through high school in the early 2000s without I having know. to watch that at some point. Oh, gosh. Who else was in there? It was Josh Hartnett and... um <gasps> <sighs> Another one of those, like, uh, yeah. teenage heartthrobs. Ben Affleck? <laughs> that was no. who it was, huh? 
It was Ben Affleck. That's not uh-huh. who I remember. No. Yeah. Ben Affleck was in it, Josh Hartnett, Kate Beckinsale, Jennifer Gardner, Alec Baldwin, Cuba Gooding Jr., J.B. King. Oh, Alec Baldwin. That's who I Al- was thinking. That was the heartthrob. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Okay. Uh. And it was three hours, four minutes, just in case that was something else we were. Okay. It's um, a long movie. <laughs> okay. Um, the the attack was a major surprise to the Americans. Um, Hawaii's Pearl Harbor is around 2,000 miles from U.S. mainland and 4,000 miles from Japan, which is close to the center of the Pacific Ocean. And nobody anticipated that they would invade the far-off islands of Hawaii mm. in order to launch a war, um, mostly because American intelligence officers believed that any Japanese attack would occur in one of the uh, South Pacific European colonies like um, the Dutch Indies or Singapore or Indochina. Um, So they really didn't think that they were going to get that close to America. Yeah. I mean, that's that's bold. Yeah. That's real (laughs) bold. bold. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So according to history.org, the Japanese plan was simple. Destroy the Pacific fleet. That way the Americans would not be able to fight back as Japan's armed forces spread across the South Pacific. But the Japanese had been unable to destroy the Pacific fleet, um, even with all of that damage, because around this time, battleships were no longer the most significant naval naval vessel. Instead, it was aircraft carriers. Those were Mm -hmm. the most important. And on December 7th, luckily, almost all of the carriers of the Pacific fleet were away from their bases. So they got like no aircraft carriers. Hmm. Um, President Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress the next day, December 8th, 1941. Uh, In his famous speech, of course, he said in part, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might <laughs> will win through absolute victory. I believe I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the utmost, but will make very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger us again. So the American public was kind of now united in their desire to enter the war after Pearl Harbor. Um, Again, from history.org, the Japanese had wanted to go the United States into an agreement to lift the economic sanctions against, against them. Instead, they had pushed their adversary into a global conflict that ultimately resulted in Japan's first occupation by a foreign power. So... Mm-hmm. Did not go as planned. <laughs> no. It's it's so funny that you're doing this topic because it was like two days ago. I can't even remember what sparked it, but it was one of those moments where like I had to like Google instantly. But I mm-hmm. was like, it hit me. I'm like, why did Japan bomb us? Yeah. And it was I, like, I didn't know. Right. Like, I, I knew that it happened, but yeah. I had no idea why. So mm-hmm. I googled it but this is a much better answer (laughs) there's yeah so (laughs) they were also like super pissed at all of like the the trade blocks and um there was so many economic restrictions that the united states Mm -hmm. had been putting on japan for since the 30s because of 
their invasion of China. Yeah, so I didn't know about any of this either, even after watching that three-hour movie. Uh. Well, no, because no. we just, you know, we're just so self-centered in all of our uh, all of our teachings about history. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's why we need to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so in... My staff pick, Pieces of Chain Reaction, uh, Tanya Stone writes, quote, the animosity and suspicion toward people who looked Japanese was immediate. Without any regard toward rights of citizenship, they became targets. So within hours after the attack, the FBI began rounding up Japanese leaders of communities for interrogation and closed down Japanese banks, stores, and newspapers. That's also something I didn't know. It was literally within hours. No, I didn't know. Of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. In the weeks that followed, they ransacked the homes of those with family members of Japanese descent, even those who were American citizens, confiscating anything that they deemed to be contraband or anything that made it appear that they were loyal to the Japanese emperor. Mm. Um, Some of these items included cameras and radios. I had also read in her book, uh, she has a quote from someone who experienced this and said that um, their they had their um, siblings, their younger siblings had little Japanese dolls and those were taken. Um, they were mm. confiscated as contraband. It's just is awful. It's horrific because these are American citizens mm-hmm. who like their country that they live in now has just been attacked they're just as terrified as everyone else yes yeah oh wow and interestingly though like uh, italians and germans did you know face a little bit of this same like uh, some of them were uh, interrogated um to try to find spies but they got nowhere near the extent of the treatment as uh, japanese americans did right um, it's not like we put all uh people who were from countries that the nazis ended up invading in yeah. camps nope yep so uh, it's all racism Mm-hmm. This, of course, also caused a rise in racist attacks against anyone who appeared Japanese by citizens, um, especially along the West Coast. Mm-hmm. The L.A. Times even called California a zone of danger. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I did put the quote in here. Okay. So uh, Jiro Ishihara, who was a high school student at the time, recalls, quote, we'd hear that the person down the street had been picked up for having feudal dolls or that the neighbor had been taken away for having Japanese recordings. So my father burned everything that had the slightest connection to Japan. It was a terrible time. That's so heartbreaking. So they were burning their family photos. Um I'm reading a book right now. Um, It's actually going to be one of my recommended reads, but it's about this time, like right before the uh, incarceration camps and um, the the main character, her mother uh, has died just very recently. And so she has her kimono and her father wants her to burn the kimono because he's scared. But if they find it, you know, it's Mm going to be contraband. So um, she has to kind of make that decision if she's going to try to hide it or if she's going to burn the God. only thing she has left of her mom. Like, oh. yeah, awful. Mm-hmm. 
so Eleanor Roosevelt um, in the 40s, she had a, um, a newspaper column that she wrote six days a week. Um, and on December 16th of 1941, in her column, she stated, the great mass of our people stemming from these various national ties must not feel that they have suddenly ceased to be Americans. So she's ostensibly criticizing this treatment of Japanese Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, she was criticized heavily for her stance. Um, the LA Times published an editorial reading, quote, when she starts bemoaning the plight of the treacherous snakes we call Japanese with apologies to all snakes, she has reached the point where she should be forced to retire from public life. Good God. Yeah. How dare a woman have an opinion? Right? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Um, There is even a Life magazine article pointing out incredibly inaccurately and very racistly, I don't, that's not a, whatever, um, the differences in physical characteristics between the Chinese and the Japanese. Oh, Jesus Christ. In Life magazine. (sighs) This is it. Oh my God. Yep. Yep. What even says (laughs) the difference (sighs) is... That uh, Japanese do not have beards. Um, None of them. No beards. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. On February 19th, 1942, so just two months after Pearl Harbor, FDR issued Executive Order 9066 which gave the U.S. government the authority to, quote, prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as it may determine from which any or all persons may be excluded and with respect to which the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave shall be subject to whatever restrictions the Secretary of War or the appropriate military commander may impose. Whatever restrictions... Which is just martial law. It's just free range to do whatever yeah. the hell they wanted to do. Yeah. Oh, it's so scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of this executive order, this is why, as you mentioned um, in your episode, Japanese Americans tried to fight these injustices in court. They all lost because mm-hmm. of this executive order. Mm. Um. And because the majority of the those of Japanese descent lived in um, either California, Oregon, or Washington, uh, the Lieutenant General John DeWitt determined that the prescribed military areas that were specified in Executive Order 9066 would be all of California and the western halves of Oregon and Washington. Okay. So, yeah, those are the military areas. Uh, On March 29th, 1942, under the authority of the executive order, DeWitt issued Public Proclamation Number 4, which began the forced evacuation and detention of Japanese-American West Coast residents on a 48-hour notice. 48 hours. Can you do anything in 48 hours? Like, plan to go anywhere? Because I can't. No. And this is... Yeah, this is, you know, (laughs) pack up your entire life because you're going wherever we tell you you're going. Right. And not like evacuating because there's like a threat or a natural disaster or something. Just 
let's go. Yep. You have no idea if or when you'll come home or what situation you're walking into. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, 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 no. I hate it. (laughs) So only a few days prior to that proclamation, on March 21st, Congress had passed Public Law 503, which made violation of Executive Order 9066 a misdemeanor punishable by up to one year in prison and a $5,000 fine. Cool. So So you're going either way. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The War Relocation Authority, or the WRA, was created with the express purpose of forcefully removing Japanese and Japanese Americans from those locations and detaining them. Uh, Around 1,200 people were transferred to assembly centers, is what they called them, from the end of March to the beginning of August, which were frequently racetracks or fairgrounds. Um, Notoriously comfortable places to live. Yes, yeah. So these assembly centers is where the people would kind of wait uh, to be um, tagged to identify the location of their long-term relocation center, Mm -hmm. heavy, heavy air quotes, uh, that would serve as their home for the duration of the war. Um, But many of them stayed in these assembly centers for months. And they're literally staying in horse stalls. Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, nah. The number of Americans that were evacuated was close to 70,000. Mm-hmm. Um, none of these persons were facing disloyalty accusations, and there was no avenue for them to challenge the confiscation of their assets and freedom. Milton Eisenhower, who was the head of the WRA, hosted and narrated a newsreel. That was just wartime propaganda Mm -hmm. uh, explaining the situation to the general public. And he said, quote, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. No one knew what would happen among them if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities, therefore, determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. He also gave some absolutely ridiculous justifications, such as, Japanese fishermen had every opportunity to watch the movement of our ships, and Japanese farmers were living close to vital aircraft plants. (laughs) The movement of our ships meaning <sighs> they are not part of our right right they're intentionally excluding japanese americans even though <laughs> they're american citizens they're americans like, <laughs> right right yes. like these people who are just trying to run their businesses and send their children to school and are doing all the t- yes they're just people they're just fucking people yeah oh my god and we're acting like if the japanese come to our shores they're just gonna be like well we're with them now yes i mean <laughs> so in her book tanya stone she um i think i called her smith at one point it's tanya lee stone who wrote pieces of chain reaction um so it is juvenile nonfiction, but she does such a good job of breaking up those executive orders and um breaking up his speech and saying 
pay very close attention to the language that's being used because mm. it is absolutely intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made to make you feel certain ways. Um, so I think she does just an excellent job of explaining it even to adults, like not just for kids. It's, yeah. it's such a good And book. especially because most of us, I know myself, mm-hmm. would are coming into these topics from a place where like I, my background knowledge is zero. Yeah. That's like one paragraph in a high school history textbook. That's it. Yeah. So I feel like starting at that level is so good because it's accessible and Mm -hmm. you can like dive into those little bits that if you were reading an adult book, it's probably going to be at a level where you're assuming you have a little bit more knowledge. Yes, absolutely. I just don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's such a stunning book. Um, And I, I think we must have been taught like a sliver about this in history mm-hmm. because I just I remember um I think I was reading a fiction book actually it was like a, an assigned reading but I remember the family was removed and I remember them living in a horse stall like that's mm. the thing that sticks out in my mind but I didn't remember why I didn't remember any of this mm-hmm. um until um I think it was like after college when I when I actually learned about the incarceration camps which is mm-hmm. just yeah yeah and it was always just so you know just like glossed over like Mm -hmm. we had to do this thing for our protection yep yep that was it yeah oi eisenhower which confused me because it's not the president it's it's this he's the head of the wra um he concluded his war propaganda with saying quote neither the army nor the war relocation authority relished the idea of taking men women and children from their homes their shops and their farms so the military and civilian agencies alike determined to do the job as a democracy should with real consideration for the people involved no no a democracy shouldn't forcibly (laughs) illegally detain their citizens yeah Um, yeah there is no democratic way to go into an innocent american (laughs) citizen's home and tell them you're you're going right move it or lose it (sighs) wow yeah it's insulting to even include that word yes yes so more than 120,000 people were sent to concentration camps. They were forced to leave their homes and businesses. They lost their jobs. They had to leave their cars, their furniture, their pets. Um, no. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew. Anything they couldn't carry with them was left behind. Mm. Um, they were located far inland, frequently in isolated and barren areas. Sites included two in California, Manzanar and Tule Lake, um, Minidoka in Idaho, Topaz in Utah, Jerome in Arkansas, Heart Mountain in Wyoming, and Poston in Arizona, 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 <laughs> Arizona, Arizona, uh, Granada in Colorado, and Rower in Arkansas. Okay. Uh, an interesting thing that I learned is the territory of Hawaii, whose Japanese Americans made up almost one third of the uh, population, and but their work was required to maintain the economy, mm. uh, and they had mm-hmm. substantially lower incarceration rates. Imagine. Mm. Mm. Um, 
But shortly after the assault on Pearl Harbor, uh, martial law was proclaimed in Hawaii as well, and the army issued hundreds of military orders, some of which were restricted to people of Japanese heritage. So they weren't incarcerated. They just had to go fight. Um, so in these camps, uh, groups of four or five families shared tar-papered army-style barracks with their meager collections of clothing and belongings. The majority endured terrible conditions for at least three years before the war came to an end. The barracks were gradually made a little cozier and more private by the addition of lightweight partitions and insulation, and many of the families made their own furniture. Um <laughs> Social interaction and educational routines became a part of daily life. Uh, however, other social and cultural norms were disrupted by eating in communal areas, utilizing shared restrooms, and having very few job options. And uh, those who resisted were sent to a special camp at Tule Lake, California, where uh, dissidents were housed. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, one third of all Japanese people who were incarcerated were children and teenagers. <sighs> one third. Wow. Way to uh, traumatize an entire generation yeah. of Japanese Americans. Yeah. Uh, and one of those uh, children and teens was Yuzuru Takeshita. This is a photo if you're watching along with us. The um the top one is them loading some suitcases and belongings into a uh, a bus. Um and then there's mm -hmm. some waiting to be uh, tagged to find out where they're going. Mm -hmm. Um and then the bottom picture is one of the incarceration camps and you can see the barbed wire. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just it looks horrific. Yeah. Um Another thing I found out, and <laughs> this could be a whole other episode on its own, but um, the government hired Dorothea Lang to go photograph the uh, incarceration camps. Really? Um, mm hmm With the thinking of, let's make this look real nice. Like, look at, you know, we're treating them so well. Um, but Dorothea did not agree with the incarceration camps. And so she took pictures of everything she saw, even things that she was not allowed to take pictures of, like the barbed wire and the guard towers mm. uh, and the military with the guns. Um, and they confiscated all of her pictures. Uh, and then I think like 10 years after the war is when they quietly sent them to the uh, National Archive. So wow. you can see all of her photos now, Oof. but only certain ones made it to uh, the general public. <sighs> Um, so here is Yuzuru Takeshita. Um, if you read pieces of chain reaction, there's lots of pictures of him as a young boy and a teenager in it, but I could not find any accessible pictures for me to put in this slideshow. So this is him as uh, an older man. Mm -hmm. Um, he was born in California in 1926 to father Mazo Takeshita and mother Hatsumi Ikeda. Uh, his parents were both from Kyushu, Japan, but they didn't meet until they happened to move to California as teenagers, oh. and they worked on neighboring farms. Oh, my God. Ah! Oh. I know. I know. 
when Yuzuru was nine, he and his older brother traveled to Japan to visit with their grandfather, whom they would live with for a few years to learn Japanese and get firsthand experience of their heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of Yuzuru's younger brothers explained that sending American-born Japanese to spend time with relatives in Japan was, quote, customary in those days because of racial job discrimination in the United Mm. States, so that when they became adults, they could maybe get a better-paying job with a Japanese company, which were moving to the United States to set up their businesses in the 1920s through the 1940s. Hmm. So it was common practice. Yeah, when I was teaching, um, I had a lot of students with you know backgrounds from all around the world and that was something that parents were still still doing awesome um, sending their kids uh, abroad to live with relatives for a few years to like learn the language and be yeah. immersed in their culture um and uh, yeah i can't imagine like as a parent sending your child away but like you know that it's for their good and that yeah. they can learn their culture and their background and their language and but yeah, yeah. it is whew. yeah super great opportunity but i can yeah. barely le- let my kid like spend three days with his grandma so yeah <laughs> Uh, So Yuzuru spent six years in Japan before he returned home. And while he excelled in school in Japan, his English had become so rusty that they forced him to start the third grade over again at the age of 14. No. Yes, just because of his English. That's it. Wow. I know. How frustrating. I guess what? If you like provided materials in his native language, he... He would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> spoiler spoiler alert, he turned out to be a professor. So like he's smart. <laughs> like Right. Right. Give him a chance. But that's something that like is so common in America is that mm-hmm. people who English is not their first language, we just have the assumption that mm-hmm. they must must not be smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oy. Yeah. Starting third grade at fourteen. Oh God, Billy Madison! Right? (laughs) Like, why would you? Why? It's so it's so inappropriate. Yes, (laughs) yes. Oi. Yuzuru remembers gathering in the school auditorium on December eighth, nineteen forty-one, to listen to Roosevelt's speech. Uh, He recalls, quote, suddenly the whole school was staring at us in class and on the playground. Steely eyes of our non-Japanese classmates intimidated us. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. So like many others, the Takeshita family burned any items they could uh, that could that would be considered pro-Japanese after the executive order. And on May 9th, Yuzuru filled one suitcase he was allotted with his English and Japanese dictionaries, because that's what was important to him. And then he layered all of his clothes on his person instead, because oh he wanted god. to bring his dictionaries. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's too pure. I know. Uh, so first they were sent to the Tanfaran racetrack, uh, which was one of the shabbily set up assembly centers near the San Francisco airport. Um you know, families there lived in just emptied horse stalls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Takeshita family spent months there until they were moved to the Topaz Relocation Center, uh, Incarceration Center, in Utah. Um, 
And so that's just a little bit of background on Yuzuru. He's going to be real important later, but we're going to leave him there for now. Okay. All right. So it took the U.S. military a few months after declaring war with Japan to pull off their first large-scale retaliation for Pearl Harbor. And this came in the form of what is now called the Doolittle Raid. Uh, So this was a surprise air raid by the United States Army Air Forces against the Japanese capital of Tokyo and other targets on Honshu. Uh, The raid, which took place on April 18th, 1942, was the first American air operation to strike the Japanese archipelago. Mm. Archipelago. Yes, archipelago. (laughs) I'm I'm the one who can't say it. Archipelago. I think I got you you messed up now. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, I know someone has trouble with this word. Is it me? Archipelago. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So the raid was planned by, led by, and named after Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle. Um, Doolittle and his team of volunteers trained for the raid in secret at Eglin Field in Florida. And the bombers were modified B-25 Mitchell bombers. I don't know what that means. Which Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a great a good class one. of plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but Doolittle had them stripped of their armor and armament to make them lighter and easier to take off from the carrier. Mm. The raid was launched from the USS Hornet, which was about 650 miles off the coast of Japan, and the bombers took off at dawn and headed for Tokyo. They dropped their bombs on military and industrial targets and then headed uh, for safety in China. However, the bombers were unable to reach their intended landing fields, and many of the crews were forced to bail out over Japanese-occupied territory. And of the 80 men who participated in the raid, 64 were captured by the Japanese and executed. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, The remaining 16 men were rescued by the Chinese. Uh, The raid was a symbolic victory for the United States, and it boosted morale at home and abroad, which, like, they lost 75% of their men. But, like, okay, I don't know war. Um, no, I, it's it's disgusting how dispensable human life becomes. Yeah, yeah, but you know. yay victory! I don't. Mm-hmm. I guess it's because they showed Japan that it was not invincible, and at that time, everybody thought that Japan was like invincible. Mm-hmm. All of the um the the Japanese citizens, um, and so Japanese leaders, including Prime Minister Tojo, were of course incensed. Um, they're thinking, you know, if America was going to terrify Japanese citizens at home, then Japan was going to respond in kind. Japan pledged to attack the continental United States in order for Americans to experience the horrors of war directly on their own soil. Uh, in his book, Fugo, The Curious History of Japan's Balloon Bomb Attacks on America, author Ross Cohen writes, quote, infuriated that mainland America remained comfortably untouched, the Imperial General Headquarters demanded a retaliatory strike on the United States. A simple directive went out to scientists and engineers of the Ninth Military Technical Research Institute, commonly called Noboruto. The directive was to find a way to bomb America. And I have a real hard time with the word no burrito because it is spelled no burrito. And that's just <laughs> what I want to call it. I want to call it no burrito. 
<laughs> Naturally. Oh my god. No burrito. No burrito for you. <laughs> uh, okay. Um. So the answer to this directive came from research that was conducted in 1926 by Japanese meteorologist <laughs> Wasaburo Oishi, uh, which at the time was not common knowledge to the rest of the world. Uh, and that was the discovery of the jet stream. Oh. <laughs> yes. So the jet stream is a fast-moving band of strong winds that flows high in the atmosphere. It's found in the mid-latitudes of both the northern and southern hemispheres. I think I have a picture. Yep, there it is. Um, the jet stream is caused by the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. So the warm air at the equator rises and the cold air at the poles sinks. Mm. Uh, and this creates a circulation of airflow that flows from west to east. Uh, the jet stream is strongest in the winter when the temperature differences between the equator and the poles is the greatest. So in 1933, the Japanese military had taken Oishi's research on the jet stream and assigned Lieutenant General Raikichi Tada from the Japanese Military Scientific Laboratory – to head the proposed airborne carrier research and development program. <laughs> Why are there so many names for things? Uh, Just call everything no burrito and you'll be fine. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> I hate acronyms. I know. Uh. Uh, so this program would focus on designing new weapons of war to see if the winds could be used for military purposes. And again, this is before World War II. Uh, and so, how high up is this? Is the jet stream? I like, think it's, this... it's it's no, it's high up in the air. It's like six thousand feet. Like, I think. I'm I'm so bad at that. Like, is that like do, does that like the altitude that planes? Fly yes, at? yes, okay, and that's okay. yes, it is, and that's why it doesn't take as long to get across the Pacific because you can fly through the jet stream and it'll kind of propel you. Okay. I think. Okay, <laughs> it's like um. It's like the it's the EAC, like in Finding Nemo. It totally is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I think, right. I think that's exactly it. <laughs> oh, this is how I learn. So yeah. So have that in your head when you're thinking about the term balloon bomb, right? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um. There were already uh, several revolutionary weapons uh, under consideration that they were working on uh, before World War II. One of them was the IGO weapon, uh, which was a little manless wire-controlled tank that could take out enemy pillboxes and wire tangles. Hmm. Uh, the ROGO weapon, which project, project which aimed to create a rocket fuel, um, and another <laughs> was... A death ray weapon. No. <laughs> Which used electricity to kill enemy soldiers in close proximity. A that, death ray. A death ray. They were trying to make a death ray. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that one clearly didn't make it on the short list of how to bomb America. Um, no burrito looked <laughs> into... <laughs> 
I can't not. I'm sorry. They looked into a number of ideas in the summer of 1942, including long-range bombers that could launch from submarines and fly one-way missions from Japan to cities along the U.S. West Coast. Um, According to Cohen, uh, on September 9th, 1942, the latter was tested in the Lookout Air Raid in which a Yakuska E-14Y seaplane was Mm -hmm. launched Mm -hmm. from a submarine off the Oregon coast. Warrant officer Nobuo Fujita dropped two large incendiary bombs in Siskiyou National Forest in the hopes of starting a forest fire and safely returned to the submarine. However, response crews spotted the plane and contained the small blazes. The program was canceled by the Imperial Navy after that. Mm. So it didn't work. Um, This is another really super interesting, like, moment in history that I didn't know about. So it was the first kind of uh, Japanese bombing on, you know, the continental U.S., Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't cause any real damage. Mm -hmm. Um, But just recently, there's a really lovely picture book. Uh, written about that incident because the fighter pilot who did that felt so guilty and wondered if he had hurt people that he went back to America to like check on it to see like after the war he went back years and years later to like see if he had caused anything which is just oh. yeah that yeah. story sounds very familiar mm-hmm. mm. I feel like that was one of those like feel good Sunday morning news stories at some yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um so the same that same month officials determined that the Fugo weapon seemed most promising out, out of all of these weapons that they have been uh, tinkering with. Not the death ray. Not the death ray. Um so every no burrito no burrito <laughs> project <laughs> was assigned a code name ending with go uh which was kind of like a numbering system but because you know their language the characters are different it's not actually a number i don't know um mm-hmm. i didn't understand this part very well but fugo roughly translates to like the 31st project okay um but how but fu is also short for fusen, which is the Japanese term for balloon. So that mm. may also be where the name was derived because it was not the 31st project. <laughs> so, like, it could just be because it's short for balloon. I'm so confused. I know. Yes. Um, <laughs> so veteran pilot and senior curator of the National Air and Space Museum, Robert McKesh, published a paper in the Smithsonian Annals of Flight uh, entitled Japan's World War II Attacks on North America. And this is specifically about the Fugo program. And he says, quote, the idea was based on small four beater diameter or 13 feet constant altitude balloons capable of carrying explosives. The wind was to carry the balloons approximately seven miles to enemy positions where the bomb load would be released by a time fuse. It was hoped that the results would approximate in range and accuracy those of the heavy guns used by the Germans against Paris in World War I. And the project appears to have been stopped in 1935 and never completed. So that's the status of this balloon bomb program. Okay. So it can only go 70 miles 
Which okay. is a problem. <laughs> Japan's a lot farther away than that. <laughs> but they think it has some promise. Um, and, you know, now with all of this research on the jet stream, they're thinking maybe they can make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinatingly, the idea had been used before with some success by Austria during the Italian War of Independence in the 1840s. What? Yes. They used hot air balloons of thin paper, um, and they were made to carry bombs weighing 33 pounds for a half hour and were dropped by means of a time fuse. In the 1840s! Oh my god, oh my god. Like, the innovations that we have, because we want to harm other people, right? is disgusting and terrifying. I know, let's use a balloon. Like, oh my god. Why? Yeah. Uh the the Austrians were mostly unsuccessful though with their balloon bombs. Uh, 33 pounds seems like a lot for a paper balloon <laughs> to carry. I know. Oh. <sighs> so in September of 1942, Major General Suke Kusaba, who had served under uh, Tata in the original balloon bomb program in the 1930s, was assigned to the lab and revived the Fugo project with a focus on longer flights, which they would need. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in March of 1943, a joint program between the Japanese Army and Navy came up with a balloon with a diameter of almost 20 feet that would carry a time-released bomb. It could fly around 620 miles, Mm. but there were over 6,200 miles of ocean (laughs) between Japan and the United States. uh, So that's like a tenth of the amount of or the length that they need. Yeah. Big improvement, though. The big improvement, yes. Mm-hmm. So the new idea was to launch the balloon from submarines positioned more closely to the U.S. Um, and a few hundred of the balloons were made, but the project was then halted because the Japanese military could not spare any submarines. <laughs> so for ballooning purposes. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the drawing board. Um so the scientists at No Burrito sought the advice of the Central Meteorological Observatory in Tokyo, um, where meteorologist Arakawa, 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 I'm so sorry, was asked about the feasibility of using those wind currents mm-hmm. Um And between 42 and 44, they started collecting uh, and studying numbers from seven Japanese uh, weather stations. Uh, Arakawa was able to develop uh, logical wind flow patterns uh, extending across the Pacific. And from those calculations, the flying course of the balloon, its speed, and its diffusion were analyzed, and they were able to determine optimum launch locations. So they're getting real specific now with all of this weather information. Mm-hmm. So to test these findings and to determine the feasibility of spanning the Pacific, around 200 paper balloons were launched during the winter of 1943 and 1944. While none of these balloons reached the United States, that was not necessarily the point of this um, test. They were able to attach instruments to the balloons to record upper air information. 
And with their data, scientists declared that the Fugo program would be able to be a success. Wow. So now the only thing they needed to do was to figure out how to engineer balloons using those measurements and to find manufacturers to complete them during wartime. (laughs) Sure, sure. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going to leave the episode for t- for tonight. So they have come up with the means to make these or the information to make the balloons. But how are they going to manufacture them? Um, spoiler, spoiler alert. It's children. Children. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll also uh, go check back uh, in on our, our friends, Archie and Elise in Oregon with their group of kiddos who just found something interesting um and we'll also see what a yuzuru has been up to Um, yeah so we'll 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 be back next week oh my gosh wow wow okay this is i I still can't believe that this (laughs) is a thing it's a real life thing never heard of it yeah um so this reminds me um where so where we live, it's incredibly windy. Like mm-hmm. when it is windy, it is like I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so so windy. But like when you check the, like the weather, they're getting their wind speeds from like you know somewhere in town. Uh huh. So I feel like it's never accurate. Right. So I've been telling Dave that I want like something to measure wind speed at our house. <laughs> And this is where you can see the difference between probably someone who's neurotypical and someone who's neurodivergent because he said, he said, okay, Katie, but what are you going to do with that information? You're going to have said, it. I said, I'm going to know it. Exactly. Exactly. I don't have any plans for it. I just want to know. Just like the ship patterns. Yes. I just yes. need to know. Oh, the ships are back. The ships are starting. Oh. Like, the, all the ice is gone. It's happening. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's exciting. Uh, he, he drove across the bridge today to get lunch, and uh, he came back. He's like, I saw a big barge. Oh. And I was like, "What? which one was it? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. I'm like, you, do, you didn't look to see where it was coming from and where it was going? <laughs> Don't you know you're supposed to do that? Yes. Oh, so anyways. Uh, yeah. Maybe for my birthday, I'll get a wind speed. <gasps> oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I so know. I looked, I had to look up because all of the research on this, it, I kept saying that the balloons had radio zones to detect weather data. And I was like, what the fuck is a radio zone? Mm-hmm. But it literally just means something attached to a balloon. Like the, God, why can't like they just hang little basket things? Oh that's my a radio God, Why can't we just call things what they are? <laughs> right? It's like, what kind of weather equipment is this? <sighs> it's no. a basket. It's a basket. It's a fucking basket. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I am excited for the rest of this um episode because yes, it does get sad because bomb. Um mm-hmm. uh and internment camps uh incarceration camps um but there's a really lovely piece like 40 years after the war uh where some people reunite and it's it's a really lovely 
tribute and uh, tribute to peace really so there will be a happy ending coming (laughs) okay okay and as long as there's more no burrito we can make it through i think there's a little bit more no burrito uh, (laughs) just a little bit yeah yeah so that's what i know so far (laughs) great well thank you that was super informative so much about World War Two that I don't oh, know. There's oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm. There's 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 a lot out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why people can get, you know, fascinated by just that one specific era of history. Yes, because there's so much. There really is, yeah. In so many places. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I I never thought that I would reach the point where I was someone who would be like, I, know, I could sit and like watch 10 hours of World War II documentaries. I know. Oh my God. Oh my God. When my dad did that, that when I was growing up, I was like, what is wrong with you? What is <laughs> this is the most boring thing on the planet? <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that there that joke where you, you realize you're old when you're either like really into gardening or really into World War Two history or something like <laughs> yes, that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 The fashion was great. So I mean it's a it's a good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was a good time period for fashion. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not that they cared about that. Uh well, all this other bad stuff was happening. Actually, yes, they did. Yeah, because, they did. Because the the the, the female uh, p- people, you know, working and working in the Red Cross and everything, still had to wear their red lipstick. So, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. like part of their uniform. Yeah, and I know that um, the Soviet women who served had mm-hmm. very strict guidelines on yes. what they could and could not wear. The Night Witches. Oh my God! That's so I've uh, I've wanted to do an episode on them, uh, but there's not like a ton of information. Yeah, yeah. That'd be one of those you'd have to like combine it with. Yeah, with a few others. But yeah. Oh God! If you don't know who the Night Witches are, look them up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the name alone. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a great novel by Kate Quinn, hmm. and I, I think. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look because I don't want to give. <laughs> she's written so many amazing novels from that, yeah, um, time period, yeah. Uh, but I want to make sure that I tell you the right one, um, the Huntress. Ooh, it's called the Huntress, and it's about a um, night witch who uh, teams up with. Um, uh, I don't know what the right word for him is because he doesn't like really work for the government, but he helps to like track down Nazi war criminals who have like Ooh. kind of gone to ground and, and hidden. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So it's it's really good, and it's one of those that like takes place in two time periods. So there's like her story when she's a night witch, and then her story like later when she's helping track down these these war criminals. So amazing. Yeah. Super super good. Um. Yeah, a lot of lot of uh, really interesting insight into the night witches. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. awesome! Uh, how did we get this far off topic? I don't Who knows? know. I don't know. We'll see you next week. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we will. Thanks for listening. Yes, and we will see you next time. Yeah, bye, bye. Thank you for listening to the Reference Desk. 
If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the reference desk. And if you're interested in purchasing any of the books we discussed today, visit our bookshop storefront at bookshop.org slash the reference desk pod. You can find us on Instagram at the reference desk pod. Visit our website at the reference desk or drop us an email at reference desk pod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by us. Our music is Say Salavi by Eric Harper, and our cover art for the show is by Maria Amaya. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks. <laughs>